So, um, as you know, we're kind of going through uh, church history, and today we're covering Who Are the Adventists, Part 2. Uh, Jin Ha shared a bit about the beginnings of Adventism in her sermon last week, and so uh, I thought that I would do a brief review, and then we'll cover new ground. Um, Jin Ha was mentioning back in 1831, there was a man named William Miller who began studying the Bible, and as he was studying uh, specifically the books of Daniel, uh, or the book of Daniel, he came across this prophecy in Daniel chapter 8, chapters 8 and 9, and he was really convinced that in 1844 that Jesus was going to come again. And as a result, he began preaching this message, and uh, history states that there were over 100,000 people that began believing this Advent message. And that word Advent really just means uh, that there's going to be a, uh, an appearance of something or someone significant. And so there are this group of Adventists who are really anticipating the second coming of Jesus. Uh, along with those 100,000 people, there were 200, some 200 ministers. And as 1844 arrived, they began making more and more specific predictions, and they believed that in October 22, 1844, that Jesus would come again. And October 22 came, and it went, and people were greatly disappointed. Now, these people, they weren't just verbally saying, yeah, we think Jesus is, gonna, is going to come. These people were selling their homes, they were selling their farms, and they were trying to figure out, you know, what can we do to make the gospel go further? And so they had gotten rid of their possessions, they had put their money into publishing different papers, and they were wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly into it. There's a story of a gentleman who was baptizing individuals one week before October 22 in 1844. And as he was baptizing these individuals, it's very cold. Um, he's in this ice-cold water, and as he's baptizing people, his family becomes worried about his health, and they're saying, Dad, you're about to catch hypothermia. You need to watch your health. And in his mind, he believed Jesus is coming in one week. How can I... How can I not baptize these people? And so he kept baptizing people, and uh, basically he caught hypothermia and he died. And as a result, his family members rejoiced and thought, wow, our dad gave all that he had, and in in less than one week we're going to see him again. And October 22 came, and it went, and people were just devastated, devastated. The result of this movement was uh, there were a group of Adventists that kind of gathered together. And I kind of want to give you a little bit more historical setting as we um, move forward. Here's the gentleman by the name of William Miller who kind of started the movement. Um, Him and two other people were kind of like the core members of leading this group of Adventists. Uh, So this was William Miller, Joshua Himes, and Joseph Marsh. And what ended up happening is from 1844 to 1845, uh, 1849, when William Miller passed away, uh, they started coming through these uh, very interesting, unique challenges of all these Adventists because everyone was trying to figure out what happened? How come Jesus didn't come? And as they began studying their Bibles, um, they started coming to these very unique conclusions and these unique challenges. And so while there was a group of very committed people, even after they were disappointed, there was a large group of people that started believing very interesting teachings. I'll list a few of them for you. There was a group of people that believed that in 1844, instead of Jesus coming, what he did was he kind of sealed the fate of everybody on earth. In other words, those that chose to believe were sealed for salvation. And those that did not believe, well, they were just lost. 
And so these Adventists kind of thought, okay, well, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come and forget everybody else that rejected the message. And so that was called the shut-door theory. And they were kind of extreme. It was kind of this, whoa, um, don't spend time with us because you are unholy people. And there was, it caused quite a bit of friction. There was another group of people that started studying their Bibles and believed that Jesus did not want communion to take place in the church, and they banned communion. No more foot washing, no more partaking of, um, I guess for them it would have been the Eucharist, and they kind of just stepped away from that teaching, and they said, no more communion, and this caused quite a bit of friction. There was another group of people that believed, well, as end-time believers, we need to practice Christian fellowship. And part of Christian fellowship in the New Testament, it says that you should greet each other with a kiss. And so, as they argued, should we, should we be allowed to greet each other with a kiss? And some people thought, okay, well, as long as it's with the same sex, it's okay to greet each other with a kiss. Other people believed, no, it's okay to greet, each other, greet the opposite sex with a kiss. And anyway, this caused quite a bit of friction as well. <laughs> and so, these are some of the things that they argued about. There were some people believed that there's this teaching called the millennium, a thousand years of peace, a thousand years of rest. And they argued constantly over when this thousand years would take place. Some people believed that it, would, it was going to be in the future. Some people believed that it was going to be in the past. And some people believed that they were living in it right at the present time. And they believed for a thousand years, we need to rest. It means no work, no pleasure. We just kind of get to know Jesus during this thousand years. And so they abstain from work, they abstain from marital relationships, and some people broke off their marital relationships and thought, look, um, we need to focus on Christ, we're in this period of rest, and we need to just not participate in these things. And so this caused quite a bit of stress for William Miller and the other two gentlemen, and so they were kind of trying to figure out, what can we do? The church, not the church, this group of Adventists kind of split up into three main groups. And I'm kind of curious, on people on this side of the room, are you able to see the... Okay, great. Actually, it's just me. I can't see it, so I'm going to move this. So, there are three main groups. The first group was called the Evangelical Adventists. And these individuals, they were very closely in line with mainstream Christianity at that time. And basically, the only uniqueness to them was that they believed that Jesus was going to come again. And this was quite a very fanatical, or not a fanatical, this was a very um, controversial topic. And so, those are the evangelical Adventists. What ended up happening is, as time moved further and further away from 1844, these individuals realized that the difference between them and the mainstream Christian churches there weren't that much of a difference, and they basically assimilated back into their own churches. There was a second group of uh, Adventists. They were called non-Sabbatarian Adventists. They believed that the thousand years of peace or the thousand years with Christ had already taken place and that Jesus had already come in a spiritual manner. And they were basically, they didn't believe in the Sabbath, but they believed in this second Advent, but the form of it was quite different from the rest. There was a third group of Adventists. They were called the Age-to-Come Adventists. They were strongly opposed to organization, and they believed that there was going to be a thousand years that was going to take place in the future. After that thousand years, um, there were the Jewish people who had been displaced from Palestine would be um, gathered together, and they would be reinstated into Palestine, and then the kingdom of heaven would enter this new phase. And so that was the Age-to-Come Adventists. 
Then there was a small group of people called the Sabbatarian Adventists. And this is kind of where our church comes from. They decide, we're going to revisit the scripture. We know there are a lot of different teachings that are going on, and we're going to gather together and, and study. And what ended up happening is that there were a small group of around 20 to 25 people that gathered together and they started studying their Bibles. Here's some of the leaders of, the, uh, of that uh, initial movement. There was James White and Ellen Harmon. Um, both of them were quite young um, at that time. There's another individual by the name of J.N. Andrews and Joseph Bates. And these four individuals really gathered people together. They poured their time, their money, their resources into really gathering people together to study the scriptures and to get to know Christ once again post-disappointment. Now, it's very interesting because at this time you've got all these funny teachings and you've got people who have just experienced something that's been quite painful and then you've got this group of people that are trying to gather everyone together to say, hey, let's study the scripture. And they formed these things called Sabbath conferences and basically it's like a uh, extended bible study and they would pack a room out with about 35 to 50 people and they would bring their bibles and they would hash out all of these different teachings and try and figure out how to make sense of scripture and uh, basically the written account is that these um, bible studies or these sabbath conferences became quite heated and people argued quite a bit Um, you had people who were just very convinced that what they believed was truth. And uh, basically, the written account is that Ellen Harmon came to these conferences and the arguing got so intense that she almost fainted. Now, I don't know if you've ever argued with someone so much that you've fainted before, but um, anyway, this was the experience of these Christian believers. And so uh, this is kind of how our church was birthed. It was actually birthed out of these arguments and these Bible studies, and it's, it's quite unique. Now, lo and behold, the attendees finally came to a conclusion. And what they decided is they agreed to lay aside minor matters and unite on the basic truths made up in something called the three angels message. And so they agreed, listen, we've got so many different ideas, so many different approaches to scripture. Let's just agree, we're going to study the three angels message and we're going to pick this as our main Bible text to kind of uh, communicate to everybody, this is God's message and this is what we're going to follow. And so this afternoon, what I thought I would do is I would go through the three angels message with you um, somewhat briefly and uh, hopefully this will kind of encourage you to uh, look at the three angels message for yourself um, as you leave this, as you leave uh, the exchange. Now, the three angels message is located in a book called Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible, and it's a highly prophetic book. Actually, the whole book is a giant prophecy, and it's given to a man named John in vision. And basically, the Holy Spirit came to this man named John, gave him a vision of what was going to take place, and basically John. Um, God told John, this is what's going to happen in the future, and I'm giving you a prophecy. And so I want to read the first few verses with you so that you can understand why uh, the Adventists looked at Revelation and said, we need to understand this book. So the first three verses go this, like this. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, 
and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Now if you notice this last verse here, the time is near. It's kind of like a definite article. It's like, dun, dun, dun. This is it. So it's not just, oh, it's about uh, 10 minutes to 4 and uh, we need to get ready for dinner. It's like, this is the end of time. This is important. And so this book, this highly prophetic book, promises a blessing to those who read it, to those who take it to heart, and to those who understand it. In other words, follow the things that are written in this book. There's something very special in this book. And so at the center of this book of Revelation, there's something called the three angels message, and it's found in Revelation chapter 14. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your phones or your Bibles, to turn to Revelation chapter 14. And what we're going to do is we're going to read from verses 1 Uh, We're going to go through verses 1 to 12 together. So Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. And I'm just going to highlight a few things about this passage. Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. Now it's interesting, um, scholars kind of, people who have studied the book of Revelation have kind of Uh, made an observation that the book kind of mirrors itself. In other words, there are words in the first chapter that are used in the same way in the last chapter. And then if you were to look at the next chapter, there are words in the second chapter that kind of mirror the words in the second to the last chapter. And they, they call this structure a chiastic structure. And what they're saying is there's this mirroring type of structure. And what the Greeks try to communicate to each other is in this literary form, Usually when we look at the climax of a story, when does a climax take place? At the beginning of the story, middle of the story, end of the story? Sorry? I hear like... (laughs) Middle? The climax takes place at the middle of the story? At the end, right? At the end. <laughs> like, when you, when, you, when you see a TV show or the movie or something like that, you're left with the, no way, usually at the end, right? <laughs> so what happens is, with the Greeks, they're trying to communicate how to know what the climax and the main point of the book is. And interestingly enough, the climax of the book of Revelation actually takes place in the middle, which is exactly Revelation chapter 14. And so... We're in Revelation chapter 14, and it describes this end-time people that God has, and he gives them an end-time message. And so, here are the first few verses. I'm just going to read the first one. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Okay. So, in question time, we're actually going to be looking at the first few verses of Revelation chapter 14. So, I'm not going to explain everything, um, just for the sake of time, but I just want to highlight a few things. Number one, it says that um, there's this lamb, it's standing on Mount Zion. And in the Bible, uh, the Bible refers to Mount Zion as God's city. Uh, It's referred to as God's kingdom. And if there were any kind of Hebrew person who understood the Old Testament, whenever they would refer to Zion, it's kind of like this um, kingdom that they could look forward to and say, one day, like right now, our nation is a mess, but one day, Mount Zion is going to be built and God is going to reign there. And so there's like this uh, off in the distance kind of like a kingdom that God would reign. And so 
Very, very important language there. So notice the lamb is standing there, and he has 144,000 people. Now, I'm just going to side skirt 144,000 and just say it means God's people. These are a group of people that are dedicated to God. And what I want to focus on is the characteristics. And uh, later on, you guys can discuss what 144,000 means if you want in question time. So if you look at verse 4, it says, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. Okay. Now, here's where we start reading this passage, and it's kind of like, what is this misogynistic passage talking about, right? Because basically, God's chosen people, they have not defiled themselves with women. So does that mean that the end-time people are only going to be male? Does that mean that the end-time people are going to... These are the people who have not been been in, in any marital relationships or any kind of intimacy. Like, basically, it isolates... These people too, like young boys, right? <laughs> and so the question is, what does this actually mean? And so what I want to highlight is the book of Revelation is very symbolic, and it's very important to look at the whole book, different parts of the book, to understand what the language is talking about. So the first thing we're going to kind of define is what it means when it's asked, or when it points out that these people have not defied themselves with women. What are women in Bible prophecy? That's basically what we're going to look at. Look at. So... In Revelation chapter 17, verses 3 to 6, it introduces this idea of woman. And here's what it says. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Okay, so here is this introduction to this woman. And um, if you look at the description of this woman, it's actually, you know, it's not that pleasant. She is a prostitute, she's got this cup of wine, she's drunk, there's blood of all of God's people, and uh, my, my particular version says martyrs, so these are people who have died for their faith, right? And so, if I were to summarize um, this woman in Revelation chapter 17, I would say uh, this woman embodies the idea of um, fornication and drunkenness and... Uh, appetite, and uh, she is a power who practices coercion and persecution. Just in general, she's not a nice woman, right? And uh, notice she's the mother of prostitutes. So there are tons of other daughters that she has that are the same as her. And so in Revelation chapter 14, when it says, by the way, God's people have not defiled themselves with women, it's in reference, it's most likely in reference to Revelation chapter 17. Now, just to show that it's not um, being gender-specific or it's not bagging on women, there's another passage here. So this is a picture of the woman of Babylon. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. There's a second woman that is introduced in the book of Revelation near the end of the book. And here's what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. And I'll stop right there. So here's this second picture. It's this woman who's considered a bride, and basically she is the new Jerusalem. So woman number one, Babylon, bad woman. Woman number two, the new Jerusalem, good woman. In other words, she is waiting for her husband, right? This is a woman who is um, kind of prepared herself for her husband. Now, if you go back to Revelation chapter 14 with me, Revelation chapter 14, and here's the second woman of Revelation. It's, okay, anyway. Revelation chapter 14, and you look at verse 4, back to verse 4. That idea of woman can be defined as a people group, as an institution, as a church, as an organized body, if you will. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. So, here is this group of people, and they have not defiled themselves, and defiled just means made themselves unclean or impure with any kind of women. In other words, they are a different kind of a group. And if you notice, this group is characterized by being able to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now, in the Bible, whenever it references lamb, generally it's talking about Jesus. There's this uh, passage in the book of John. It's John chapter 1, verse 29. Someone's talking about Jesus, and they say, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so here's Jesus. He's characterized as a lamb. And basically, in Revelation chapter 14, this people group follows the lamb wherever he goes. Now, this people group is very opposite from the woman of Babylon. The woman of Babylon practices coercion, um, practices fornication. It practices this, basically, I will do whatever I want to do when I want to do it, and I don't need to submit to anybody. And there's this idea of, I have power. Now, the second group of people, there's this idea of submission, where they're following the Lamb. Now, that the wording that's given in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, talks about the lamb moving. And what I want to highlight is that this lamb is mobile and it's dynamic. It's not static. It's not stationary. Now, what do I mean by that? If you keep looking with me from Revelation chapter 14 and go down to verse 6, it introduces this first message. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now what I want to highlight here is that word everlasting. This people group has this message called the gospel, and it is timeless. In other words, it applies to every single time period on planet earth because it's everlasting. So they've been given this very special, relevant message. Secondarily, this message goes to the whole earth, not just to the western part of the world, not just to the Middle East, not just to one specific localized area. This message is a global message. And so it's very, very special. Now what I mean by movement, 
The Lamb has the power to take these people wherever He would go. And what that means is sometimes it's easy to, and historically what we've looked at is people have taken truth and they've stopped in one area and they've given themselves a label. In other words, we are the Baptists. We believe in baptizing people and that's what we believe in. It is what it is. And then there's no change or movement to what they believe and how the church operates. And so there's this kind of idea of throughout history, and I kind of highlighted the Baptists, but every single church in history has been at the point where they've decided, this is who we are, we will, no, we will move no further. And I want to include the Seventh-day Adventist church as well. We, there are times where we kind of say, this is who we are, this is what we have always done, and we will not move any further. And so it's really addressing this mindset of these people. Now notice here, God's end-time people, they follow the Lamb. In other words, they are open, they are deferential, they are humble, they are willing to let Jesus lead wherever they would go. And so, what this message is saying is, in the end times, God is looking for a people who will always follow His truth. I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church comes very, very close to this, and we fulfill, or we, we have been very intentional historically as a church to fulfill this uh, description, which is why the Adventists of old decided we're going to pick the three angels' message. I want to talk about this gospel. If you look at verse 7, it starts describing how the gospel is supposed to be proclaimed. And here's the proclamation of this gospel. It says, Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, keep that phrase in your mind. Worship Him who made heaven, earth, sea, and springs of water. So heaven, earth, sea, springs of water. Just keep repeating that in your mind. And heaven, earth, sea, springs of water. And notice there are parts of the Bible that really repeat this phrase. And this verse is kind of alluding to another passage in the Bible. If you look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11, there's a command uh, here that's given in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment, and here's how it goes. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or any of your animals, or any foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So notice that progression is used from Exodus chapter 20 to Revelation chapter 14. Now that poses kind of a question, right? Because I said, this people have been given the everlasting gospel, and I just quoted you the Sabbath commandment. And so it's easy for me to say, the Sabbath commandment is the gospel, and therefore we need to keep the Sabbath, right? And that's actually, um, that's actually not where I'm going. But there is this direct illusion given to the Sabbath, and this is why, this is why I believe this um, passage has been highlighted. If you look in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, and I'm just going to highlight this, and um, this is a, I realize this is just kind of in-depth Bible study, but bear with me so that um, I can hopefully explain why the three angels' message is important. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Notice it says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, 
Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So the author of Hebrews says, look, there is this rest that's really important for you to experience as an individual. And this rest is applicable to you. It's really, really important. He continues on. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is the good news? Any other word that comes to your mind when you think of good news? Have I scared everybody from responding? (laughs) What's the good news? All right, someone said salvation. Anything else? All right, yeah, gospel, right? So the good news in the Bible is defined as the word gospel. And that basically means Jesus' death and resurrection. He died for our sins. He died on the cross. He was laid into the tomb. And the third day he resurrected and he broke the power of sin and death. And that is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus died for us. Now, in Revelation chapter 14, the first angel message says, I've got the everlasting gospel. And I'm pointing you to Sabbath rest. And this passage links those two ideas together. So, verse 2. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. Okay, so there's this message of good news. It's supposed to be beneficial to us. And according to this verse, I want to ask you, how does one experience the good news? According to verse 2. How does one enter, or excuse me, how does one experience the good news or the benefit of the good news? Entering into rest. Does that make sense as you're reading through verse 2? So in other words, there are some people who heard the good news and they made a conscientious decision, I will not enter into rest. And as a result, they didn't experience the good news. Okay? Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Now we who have believed... Enter that rest, just as God has said. And then he continues on. And what I want to highlight here is verse 6. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage, and fast-forwarding, basically... For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, the author of Hebrews connects connects this idea of entering into rest with entering into the Sabbath. All right, so the question is, what is going on? So next verse, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Now when you think of Jesus breaking the power of death, when you think of the gospel, when you think of the good news, what event do you usually think of? And let me go back one slide. When you think of Jesus breaking the power of death and sin, what event do you think of? Okay, resurrect. I heard both. Crucifixion and resurrection. And usually, we usually share from the front and we preach... In Jesus' resurrection, Jesus broke the power of sin and he broke the power of death. Now, 
the same person said Jesus' crucifixion. And it is true. Jesus did break the power of sin and death in his resurrection. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it highlights something very interesting. It says, So that by Christ's death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. So according to this passage, how does Jesus break the power of sin and death? In his death. Now that kind of begs this question, wait a second. Usually life conquers death, right? But in this particular circumstance, Jesus' death conquers death. Does that make sense? It's like saying, I'm going to get punched in the face, and by getting punched in the face, I'm going to beat the other guy up. And that's exactly what's happening here. So let me review with you. What day does Jesus get crucified? What day does Jesus get crucified? Friday. What day does Jesus go into the tomb? All right, well, that's a trick question. He went into the tomb Friday night. <laughs> or Friday evening. And for, for the Hebrews, that was considered Saturday. And what day was Jesus resurrected? There is no question about which day Jesus was resurrected. Jesus is resurrected on Sunday. Okay? So now, here in the Bible, the author of Hebrews says, listen, the Sabbath rest is important because on the Sabbath, Jesus rested. And in his rest, he conquered the power of the devil. And he conquered the power of sin. And therefore, we have the hope of victory. Does that make sense? And so, here is the application for us. In our rest, we too conquer the power of Satan. We conquer the power of death and sin in our lives. Generally, we think, if I want to conquer sin... I need to do something to conquer it. In other words, just stop sinning. Like, if, if I am having a problem with something, just stop doing it, and then I'll have victory over it. And the gospel message is actually something different. It's saying, rather than you conquering it by yourself, Jesus conquers the power of sin. He dies for our sins. He's laid into the tomb. And as he's laid into the tomb and he rests, that act of rest conquers basically the effects and the power of sin in our lives. And so each Sabbath, as we make a decision, God, I know there is no way that I can gain victory in my own life. But I recognize today that you rested. So I'm going to trust in your rest, and I enter in. And by entering into that rest, you are basically saying, God, I know there's, there are things that I cannot do, so I give you power to do that which I cannot do. Let me give another Sabbath illustration to try and make it make a little bit more sense. In the Ten Commandments, there's basically one command that God gives to the Israelites. And he tells them, don't work, right? Because work is how you provide for yourself. It's how you sustain yourself. If you can't work, can you eat? Anybody? Can you survive? So you have to be able to work, right? And what this command does is, God says, I want you to learn how to trust me and look at me as your provider. In a world when we are told, if you don't do this and if you don't take personal responsibility, is anything going to happen for you? No. 
And the gospel is opposite because what God does is he says, listen, I want to step into your life. You trust me. Cease from what you were able to do. And then you let me do what you cannot do. And so the Sabbath is really this encounter where God says, I want you to experience my presence. I want you to experience my power. And just like it's very practical to say, okay, God, I'm going to step away from this. Now you provide. You do what you've promised to do, and I'm just going to let you take control of my life. You see, when it comes to the power of sin, generally we kind of have this idea of, I need to do something to break this habit. I need to do something. And what God is saying is, listen, I want you to learn how to step back and to trust that I have your life in my control. So trust me, enter into rest, and let me do what you cannot do. So this verse is practical because it says there are some things that you should stop doing, and then God steps in and he does what we cannot do. So in the Sabbath message, in the gospel message, there is this promise that God wants to change our hearts. Now, we can change our behaviors, but we cannot change our hearts. And so God steps in and he says, the gospel is set up so that you can learn how to let me heal your heart. And in doing so, we are learning submission, we are learning humility, and we are learning to trust in God. Right? Okay, so back to Revelation chapter 14. The first angel's message is this idea of experiencing the gospel. It's this idea of experiencing rest. It's about this idea of experiencing what God can do in our lives. Now notice in verse 8, it talks about the second angel. And it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So, in place of the gospel, there is this opposite institution, there's this opposite group, it's called Babylon. Now, in the Old Testament, there are different stories that talk about Babylon. I just want to highlight one characteristic. If you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, it's the first instance where Babylon is introduced into the Bible. Now, in Genesis chapter 11, it talks about um, this time period right after the flood. And if you think about the flood in the Bible, uh, God told Noah, build this big boat, and I'm going to and get as many people into this boat as you can, and I'm going to fill this boat with people and animals, and um, basically I'm going to destroy the earth. And so Genesis chapter 11 is right after the earth has been destroyed. It's right after uh, the flood, or it's sometime right after the flood. And here we go in Genesis chapter 11. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now picture this. The earth has just been covered with water. Now, it makes sense that there's a people group that is deathly afraid of this happening again. And so what do they do? They decide, we're going to build this massive tower. And so if a flood comes, the idea is we'll be able to escape the destruction. Now, notice the motivation behind the building of this safe building. And when you, look, when you think about the building at first, you think, well, that makes sense. Well, 
why would you not want to build a big building? If you just had a flood, you'd want to get some kind of flood insurance, right? And so this is what they do. Now, notice the motivation in verse 4. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. Not only is the motivation safety and security, but the motivation is self-preservation and self-exaltation. It's this idea of we can take control of our own safety and we can build something and make a name for ourselves. And so here's this idea, there's a system of Babylon that prioritizes self. Now, if you think about the 144,000, notice they follow the lamb wherever he goes. In other words, the priority is Christ. The priority is the lamb rather than the institution. But here in Babylon, rather than trusting that God would never destroy the earth again um, with a massive flood, they decide, we're going to go directly against that. We do not trust what God is going to do, and we are going to make a name for ourselves. Completely opposite of the character of the 144,000. Here in Babylon, the idea is to have the name of Babylon and exalt the name of Babylon. For the 144,000, it's a people group that have the name of God written on their foreheads. And it's a complete different way of living life. And so there's this message that these angels are going through the heavens and they're preaching, hey, listen, experience the gospel. Number two, there's a system of Babylon that is directly opposed to this idea of what it means to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so the, basically the angel comes with a second message and says, listen, as attractive as the system of Babylon is, do not exalt self. Instead, learn to trust in God because Babylon is going to fall. Now, when you look at Revelation chapter, uh, that second angel's message, chapter 14, verse 8, it repeats the word, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now, that double repetition just means that there's a future event that is going to be imminent. In other words, it will happen. There are times where God gives this prophecy and he changes his mind. But that doubling of that word means God is not going to change his mind. In other words, it will fall apart. So if I say, Roy is buff, is buff, basically it's saying, I'm going to get really, really strong one day, even if I'm really skinny right now. Which, I would never say that anyway, because I'm just doomed to skinniness anyway. But the idea is, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is this idea of, Babylon will fall, it's imminent, it's going to be destroyed. Let's end on the third angel's message. Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 9. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence um, of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So that's a pretty hardcore passage. It's basically saying, don't receive the mark of the beast, right? <laughs> and I just want to highlight one thing, two things. First thing I want to highlight is this idea of judgment. In the context of gospel, there has to be judgment. And oftentimes when we look at judgment, there's kind of like this 
idea of we want God to be a nice guy all the time. And if God is not a nice guy all the time, then it's almost like, ooh, like, we don't, we feel uncomfortable with the moments where God actually, where it says God's wrath is shown. And so what I want to highlight is in the context of gospel, there always has to be judgment. Because if there isn't judgment, God is not fair. If you look at society today, if, there's no, if there are no penalties for wrongdoing, our world is going to fall apart. And even though there are penalties for wrongdoing, you could ask Michael, do people keep the law all the time? Probably not. People probably do some pretty messed up stuff. So imagine if there is no penalty for wrongdoing. Now, in the context of God's character, there has to be judgment because if there isn't judgment, then there is a license for wrongdoing. There's a green light to say, you do whatever you want, you hurt as many people as you want, you hurt yourself, and it's okay. And the reality is that it's not okay. And so the third angel's message is very important because it states judgment is important. Now notice, it highlights one thing about those who um, experience the third angel's message or the judgment for the thir- from the third angel's message. They have no rest, day or night. And so the natural question is, if they have no rest, how does one experience rest? <laughs> Get it later. How does one experience rest? Well, we've talked about the first angel's message, but I just want to look at verse 12, which kind of repeats everything that we've already talked about. Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's just summarizing the things that we've already talked about. And so if there is someone who is asking the question, how do I follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Well, this verse explains very clearly and very simply how one would do that. Trust in Jesus, keep His commandments. And in doing so, that idea of understanding rest is actually embedded in that very bit of advice. So as you think about this, I hope that as a church here that is kind of taking the torch from what was passed down from the early Adventists, I hope that we can really take this message and to be able to understand its relevancy for us in our lives that we can understand what it means to trust in Jesus, that we can understand what it means to keep his commandments, and that we'd be able to experience that gospel rest. Uh, may God bless you as you think about his word, and as we discuss, I uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts.